It's April 3rd, 2011, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to the show. This is going to be an exciting month. I, I continue to get some wonderful messages regarding episode 109. And I want to thank each and every one of you who took the time to send me a note. I had hoped to be able to get back to each and every one of you personally, but with the release of the book, teaching, and, and everything else I have my hands on, I, I've been unable to do so. But please know that I've read every message and have deeply appreciated your thoughts and sentiments. It's the kind of stuff that really keeps me going around here. Now, that episode was a lot about passion, and today's guest is a photographer that exemplifies that. Aaron Huey came to my attention several years ago when I read about his walk across America with his dog. It was a phenomenal story, which, though it wasn't originally intended as a photo project, produced some wonderful images that provided a great perspective about the people and the landscape of this country. But it's his work since then that has proved Aaron to be a talented, passionate, and socially conscious photographer. One of these things include his Pine Ridge Billboard project, which you can support this month with a donation of any amount. As you'll hear, it's an amazing idea, and I hope you'll consider supporting it. But for now, sit back and enjoy our conversation with Aaron Hewitt. Well, Aaron, welcome to the Candid Frame. Uh, I really appreciate you making time for us on your on your busy schedule. Um, I want to start off with with the with the project that first brought you to my attention, which which was your cost country walk that you did uh, a while back with your with your dog. And I know that didn't start off specifically as a photo project, though you did make images on the trip. But what inspired that? What why did you decide to to take that on? Ah, the walk. Um, I'll try to keep that short story short. It's really difficult because it was such a big journey, not just physically but mentally, um, and in my evolution as a person and as a photographer. But um, I was I was a runner in high school, and I had had dreams of running across the country, but that kind of somehow ended up evolving into walking. And uh, I think I finally made the decision while I was living in New York City. Very briefly in 2001, I was working for Steve McCurry um, that made the famous Afghan girl photo for National Geographic. And I just kind of found myself trapped in high-rise apartment buildings working in an office. And I just thought, I got I to gotta get out of this world, this world of computer screens and cell phones and nonstop emails. And I just decided to go take the chance. Um, and I didn't, on the walk, I didn't take a cell phone. You know, I checked emails in libraries and things like that. But I kind of dropped out. Um, I uh, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be in that world at that time. I needed to, I needed to kind of step outside of it. So it's it's difficult to go into all of the details because it's such a big trip for me. I mean, the whys the whys of that trip are, are a lot more than I can sum up really. And 
in the time that we've got, but let's, we can try and dig into more pieces of it. Well, the reason I'm asking about it is so much of your work has been about, about people, um, people in, in extreme situations and also in less extreme situations. And I was wondering how that trip sort of informed how you see people, their lives, especially within the context of where they live and how pivotal was that in terms of how you shoot and photograph people and tell stories today? Yeah, I, I think it's easy now with hindsight to see the impact that the walk had. And I, I didn't design it as such, but <clears throat> I think the walk really did teach me about how about interacting with people. I I think the walk was the first time I really interacted with strangers on that level. Like, I met so many people, and I obviously didn't know any of them. These were people I met on the side of the highway or uh, sitting outside of a restaurant um, or as I walked by their front yard. Um, and that's one of the things that I wanted out of this journey. You know, we control so many elements of how we move in the world and who we meet. When we, when we make trips, we generally make trips with the windows rolled up and we know exactly where we're going. We know where we're going to go. We know what kind of food we're going to have. We know who we're going to stay with. We know how long we're going to be there. And this trip kind of shattered that, that whole concept of moving in the world. I didn't know anything about who I was going to meet or what I was going to eat or how long it would take. Um, and in meeting all of these strangers, I got to have a really special kind of dialogue because I think in going into the walk, I opened myself up to anything. Uh, I didn't go into it really with a motivation of trying to bait anything out of people. I wasn't even really thinking about the people I would meet as I, as I did this thing. It just it formed as it went. And uh, a lot of what happened was in the dialogue was people making almost confessionals to me. You know, I was this stranger that walked through town that was going to be gone again the next day. And I found people over and over again telling me things that I know they wouldn't tell their own husband or wife at times. You know, people were telling me about what they really wished they could do and what their real dreams were. And if they could uh, give it all up, what they would really want to do. Uh, and I think that's why people kind of appeared and helped me because people saw what I was doing and they would literally stop on the side of the road and say, I wish I could have done this. I wish I could do it right now. I wish I could park my car and just go with you, but I can't because I already made my decisions in my life. I have children and I have a job and I'm at this point, I'm not willing to give that up. So here's 20 bucks, you know, take it and take me with you, you know. Cause I'm, I'm curious how that, sort of dynamic in terms of people becoming open to you and you being open to encounters with, with, with strangers and, and not really having uh, sort of an agenda has translated when you've traveled abroad because you've traveled to, to Afghanistan, mm -hmm. Pakistan, Yemen, and you've traveled to these countries, much different cultures, but despite the obvious cultural differences, did you find that that dynamic between you and your subjects was much different? Or, or, or no. Then how I shoot photos when I'm doing photojournalism now? Not so much the way you shoot, but the way that you sort of engage and gain the confidence of people so that you can go in and begin taking pictures. So uh, I'm asking more about what's happening in terms of your, your ability to connect with people even before you've made that, that first photograph. 
Right. Well, I think there's a couple of different levels of of making photographs. I think there's on on the one hand there's the one where you get the call and you've got three to five days to go make the pictures, and then there's there's other ones that are more like personal projects that you think years and years into. And the the walk was like these projects I do now, like Pine Ridge, where I'm thinking years into it, in which I don't have a specific magazine or news agenda. I'm just going and immersing myself in an environment. And so in the walk, I immersed myself in that situation. And I wasn't motivated by thinking about what an editor needed or whether it would fit a story or how to make it a nice, neat package. I didn't make a story out of my walk across America. I had no media motivations. But what I ended up with was not a product. It was evidence. And it was evidence of my, my movements and my interactions. It was not a product. Like if I go out now on assignment, I'm making a specific product. And that changes, I think, how you interact with people. If you're under time pressure and you've only got a handful of days or even a week or two, you are motivated by filling, you know, X amount of page space and the story and you have an agenda. So mm -hmm. you go in with an agenda on the walk and on the Pine Ridge project. I didn't really have an agenda. I went in saying, I went in literally saying, tell me the story you want people to hear. I have no, I have no motivations here. You know, when people would say, well, what do you want from us on Pine Ridge or on the walk? People would say, well, what do you want to know? I'd say, I want to know whatever you want to tell me. Mm. But do you find that it's it's a, a more difficult when you do have those expectations in terms of what an editor wants? You know that you know you're you're, you're photographing people that may be under very some very difficult circumstances, and and you're hoping that they will trust you enough that you can go into their lives even for a very brief time to make these images to help tell their stories. But do you sometimes find it difficult? because you don't have control over how that entire story ends up being displayed in, in a magazine or a newspaper in terms of your, not only your, your relationship with them, but the kinds of images that you make, or, or is that not a, not an issue for you? Yeah. I, uh, I mean, they're, they're just not even in the same world. Like when I, when you're dealing with editors and short term goals and weekly publications, then it's just it's just a different kind of picture making you're just kind of doing your job you uh you can make art in that and you can make beautiful imagery but you are certainly i think you're taking more than giving like you're you are i mean there's no way to avoid like kind of stealing a bit you're stealing photographs like when you've got that little amount of time you know you're really focused on filling filling pages and uh, you know there are still ways to do that right and to like be present with your subject, but um, yeah, short-term stuff. I just can't really compare it to the to the more long-term committed projects. They're just different worlds for me. Yeah, and speaking of that, um, you've been working, I think, for the last six or seven years on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, um, which is definitely a personal project of, of yours. How did that? How did that begin? And why has it been such a, a passion of yours for the last for the last several years? Yeah, Pine Ridge has been going on forever. It seems to have no end, and I, I do hope that at some point it will end. Um, I've tried to get out of the Pine Ridge project several times, but I can't seem to get out. 
Um, and even though it's been six years, I haven't really been there for like months and months at a time. I've only managed to get this far at Pine Ridge because I've, I've gone in small chunks over and over again. And the, the closeness with people has come from revisiting, not from necessarily like staying there epic amounts of time. Um, Pine Ridge is a very hard place for me to be in. I generally found myself fleeing that place uh, every time I left. You know, sometimes it might only be four days and sometimes it might be a week, week and a half. But I'd either leave uh, in fear for my life or in fear for my sanity. Um, Pine Ridge, I think, is the scariest place I've seen anywhere on the planet so far. And it's just, it's so complicated. I think it's like, I think it's the layers and the depth of that darkness that keep taking me back. I mean, that combined with the personal relationships that I've established, you know, I, at first I went because I just superficially found out some information about poverty in America and Pine Ridge being the poorest place in America for 30 or 40 years. So in the beginning, Pine Ridge was just a statistic and I just went through there looking at it, looking at that place as one of many in a bigger picture of poverty in America. But I got sucked in immediately by a group of kids that lived in the, you know, the most violent town on the reservation. And they just took me in so deep and it was really their words that moved me. And I returned with a video camera that I couldn't afford because I needed to capture their words as much as their images. Um, because I knew that the magazines would never let me do the writing or use their words. Um, so I got sucked into it because it, because of what they were saying as maybe more than, uh, because of the pictures I was getting. And now today, I, I think I've recorded like 80 hours of video footage there. And what were they saying about themselves and their lives there that sort of gripped you so? Well, I mean, in the beginning, I have to admit it was pretty superficial in the beginning, just like any story you start when you don't know very much about it. It started with superficial statistics, and that drew me in, and violence and gangs, and all this superficial crap that I see encapsulated in these little Pine Ridge stories that are circling out there occasionally in the media. Um, and so the dialogue also begins a little superficially. You know, people... When when I go to gangstery towns, kids want to talk about gangstery stuff, and they want to talk tough, and and they want to like they want to put on a little play about being a gangster, essentially, in front of the camera. But I also saw, you know, I also was taken immediately into homes that are, had like fifteen, twenty people living in them, where people uh, slept in basements that had like standing water and black mold all over the walls, and slept in their clothes on rotting mattresses. And I'd never seen anything like that in America. Uh, it was just a, a new level of of poverty. But beyond the poverty, it was there was a darkness there that really scared the shit out of me. Um, you know, over the course of six years, I think six, seven people in my photos and films have died. Uh, one young kid got shot in the face. Um, a baby got suffocated to death when the mother rolled over on it. A lot of people died out in the cold, sleeping behind liquor stores. Um, every single death actually was alcohol-related. Mm. Um, and just terrible, terrible, bizarre things happened every time I went or every time I came back, I'd hear about some bizarre death. And 
it just, it was such a complicated picture. It really was like a train wreck. I mean, I have to admit in the beginning, what took me back over and over again was this, like the gore. It was the scariest, messiest thing I'd ever seen. But I was close with these families. So these families, you know, I'd sit in their houses and watch movies with them at night and I'd get really close with their children. And so I had this world that flipped, flopped back and forth between these like beautiful little Lakota children sitting on my lap to like going to these funerals and like hearing these stories of suicide and rape. And and, uh, it just was so complicated. I just, I, I couldn't tear myself away. I just kept going back. How did you feel in terms of of documenting some of those some of those ugly, painful things, knowing um, not only you know the long history of racism and economic uh, uh, injustice and all that stuff, and 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 not have it fall into a, a, a series of images that were sort of repetitive or reinforced stereotypes i mean it's kind of it's kind of hard because when whether it's native americans or latinos or african americans there's a a certain preconception that a lot of people have which can sort of numb them to the realities even if they are horrific and so how do you sort of walk that tightrope of being able to create images that wake people up that give them an insight that they don't otherwise have but doesn't reinforce you know, all those preconceptions and negative ideas. Right. Well, in the beginning, I didn't. In the beginning, I was just another stupid journalist that that breezed through there, you know, taking pictures of gangsters and poverty. Um, and really, even years and years and years into it, the only thing that separated this from being another exploitative, uh, scab-picking story about poverty and violence was the words that were put with it. That was the only thing that eventually, like, separated this from the rest of the pile, is that at a certain point, you know, and that point was the TED Talk, I really kind of, it took me a long time to figure it out. I had to, I didn't really figure all this out and make it right until I created that timeline of history that I presented in the TED Talk. Um, And it was the same pictures, you know, it was the same pictures that the Lakota were angry at me for. I had people so angry at me for taking those images and publishing those images in the New York Times and and other magazines, um, it was still the same pictures at the TED Talk, but the the voice was different. It was that I chose a side and that I spoke for those people, and I made an unconditional demand of giving the land back. Uh, and I laid out the history. I didn't I didn't just talk about poverty, the statistics, and gangs. Those are just that's like the side effects of this, of the real story. But magazines, you know, smaller magazines couldn't really deal with those, even larger magazines. Magazines in general just couldn't really deal with that larger topic. They couldn't deal with, like, presenting an entire gigantic historical timeline and then using that to explain how reservations are prisoner of war camps and how this was a kind of genocide and how it's no coincidence that men only live to the age of 47 on Pine Ridge, the same as Somalia and Afghanistan. That's no coincidence. That's not, those, those stats don't come out of nowhere. They come out of a very well-designed history that can be charted back um, very clearly, and it's what I put together in that TED Talk. So 
um, yeah, when I started, I didn't have a fucking clue, man. I had no clue. I was just another stupid journalist asking the wrong questions, making totally superficial pictures. And it's why the elders didn't really talk to me when I first went there. I remember the first several trips I made, I tried talking to people in the tribal council and tribal president, and I just I got brushed off. Mm. Uh, and now I understand why. I went in very ignorant, but asking the wrong questions and with the wrong motivations. You know, and there's a, and there's a long history of, of white journalists, white photographers coming into the community um, to document them. Sure, there's a, there, there are photographers. I think that there's a, a photographer rolling through Pine Ridge every seven days, mm. you know, and making, you know, some kind of pretty pictures of some dark stuff, and then they move on. They've got their little portfolio of of pictures of violence and poverty and sum it up with some statistics and then move on to the next portfolio piece. It's like shooting heroin addicts. It's easy sometimes. You know, it's dark, it's gritty, it's textural. It's just, you know, it's too easy if that's if that's as far as you're going to take it. Yeah. So tell me about this new project you just emailed me about where you're using your images and using street art and billboards and, and ba basically the tools of advertising to create awareness about what's happening on Pine Ridge. Right. Um, well... You know, I've, I've said that, the, that it's just, it's almost impossible to get this story into a magazine in its full form and to really use the difficult language to be able to say prisoner of war camps and to be able to use the word genocide and talk about those, those more, <coughs> those, those details uh, that are, you know, those are loaded words. They're hard to use. So um, the billboard project is a way to try to go around print media I mean, I still think there are outlets. You know, there are magazines that can still do this right, National Geographic, other magazines like that. But but really, I think to tell this story and to, to get it out there, I have to go around print media. So um, I've teamed up with Shepard Ferry and with Ernesto Urena, both artists and activists, to create um, visuals that we can put up on uh, bus shelters, subway platforms, billboards, um, anywhere we can paste something up, basically, or buy ad space. You know, it's going to be a combination of the two, large-scale paid advertising and small-scale um, wheat paste posters. But I just realized at a certain point that this project is not supposed to end with a gallery show where everybody pats me on the back and drinks wine and tells me how good I am at making pictures of suffering. And it's not supposed to end with just another book that only a couple thousand people see. Um, it's just inappropriate. I, I, there had to be a way to take these pictures to make more of an impact. And and I didn't see that really until the TED Talk. And when I saw how big of an impact the TED Talk made, I wanted to take that message a step further. Do you, do you find that, that taking that stance has opened you up for criticism? Because there are people who believe that as a, as a journalist that you should be dispassionate, neutral, and not take a side, that you should rather just put out the, the information? Surprisingly, I have not really gotten that much criticism. I don't really care, ultimately, if I, if I do get it. It's not like I'm saying, with everything I shoot from now on, I'm going to be an activist. I, 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 I'm, I don't really want to be considered an activist through this. I just want, I want a more layered truth to be out there than a simple magazine story. So... Um, I've chosen to be a spokesperson for, for the people that I've photographed and, 
this is a rare case. You know, I don't do that on every assignment. I can't every time I go out for Harper's or the Smithsonian or some other magazine for a three-day assignment or a week-long assignment, I can't go and represent for the people and understand the whole story. Like I said, this is a different kind of story. Um, it's got its own life. I'm not worried that this will, like, take over how I deal with every piece. But it was the only appropriate path for a subject this layered. Yeah. And how has the community, you know, the community itself um, changed in, in reaction to what you've been doing in terms of the work and, and now with this, with this special uh, project that you're working on? Um, what's there been their response, particularly the, you know, the people, the chiefs and the, the tribal elders? I still can't speak necessarily for all of the tribal council. I have no clue what the tribal council thinks, but very traditional families that are powerful on Pine Ridge who I have a lot of respect for, who are skeptical of me, or who were downright disappointed, you know, have now said that they're very proud of what's happening because uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to push uh, a media or white populist agenda. I'm, I'm delivering the message that, that they're saying over and over again. So, uh, this story has really departed from being straight journalism. It's like now, you know, the Ted talk was kind of a history lesson, you know, that's ending with, that ends with kind of a heavy demand. It's like an activist demand. So I don't really know what category this falls into anymore. It's, it's art, it's activism, it's history, it's journalism. It doesn't really have any borders on it anymore. And that's what I think is the genius thing about uh, joining, you know, bringing together Ernesto and Shepard into this project and even further in the Emphasis project, bringing in um, the funders. Because by as people fund this emphasis project and put in whether it's $10 or $25 or $50 or, or upwards, all of those people become collaborators because I'm going to be asking people, can you help me put up these posters and these wheat paste, uh, this, and help me put this imagery up in cities all over the country. This is a huge collaboration that overlaps all of these different spheres of influence and then, and then just gives it out to the public. Yeah. This is not... Thing has no edges on it. How do you feel that this this project has changed in the way that you tell stories and photograph, uh, particularly when you're uh, given an assignment to document uh, maybe not necessarily poverty, but other situations where people are being challenged in, in one way or another, particularly when you only have a limited time to be able to tell the story? Because you know you talked about. You know, other other photographers coming into these to the uh, to this community where the Lakota are and and producing images that are very superficial. Do you find that it's easier for you to not uh, fall into that trap now that you've had the opportunity to to work on this project for six years? Oh, I wish I could say it gave me superpowers, but no, <laughs> I. You know, I was one of those people making superficial stories, and I will again be one of those people making superficial stories. That's just that's just the facts of life. When you're making, you know, a story on a really short timeline, I would I'd do my best to be open to whatever story I find and be willing to adjust the imagery to the truth. Um, I also attempt, I think now, more than ever, to make less bludgeoning imagery, less like perfectly literal imagery. You know, I'm trying, especially uh, when I'm working for 
magazines like Harper's. I have a very special relationship at Harper's where I'm I'm able to make much more subtle imagery, and I don't need to do if there's a story about Pine Ridge, it's not going to be a bunch of pictures of like gang tattoos and like superficial violence. It's so I think I'm going a lot more for subtle, more poetic imagery than that. Like I said, than that bludgeony direct kind of picture making. Yeah, you know, when you talk about with the Pine Ridge Project, that part of what started elevating the work was the fact that you started talking with these people, recording their conversations, and making their voice a part of what you were doing. And that's how mm-hmm. it helped pull you out from doing that sort of stereotypical, you know, exploitive sort of imagery. But when you're working on assignment, um, this, you just made the point that you you, you tend not to just go to making the more obvious photographs, you know, the, the very dramatic, the very, uh, you're more into making more quiet photographs. But besides the choice not to make certain photographs, are there other things that you're trying to do to try and to, to, to fall, to try to avoid falling into that trap of, of making those kind of images that, that you were first making when you first started uh, photographing in Pine Ridge? Well, yeah, it's, and it's not just it's not just on me in the pictures. It's like again, I I'm trying to say that what makes these stories powerful at the end of the day is is what makes these stories powerful at the end of the day is the combination with text. It's what you're saying or what the subjects are saying. So an example of of a game changing kind of piece is this piece I did for Harper's a couple years ago, where we went in. And we sat down with people. I had a video camera, and the author, um, Matt Power, who's another contributing editor at Harper's with me, we recorded our conversations um, on video so that we could go back. And we ended up using actual transcriptions, in a lot of cases, of exactly what the people were saying. We went in saying, you know, tell us what you want. Tell us what you want people to hear. Tell us your stories. And we just took their stories and, and transcribed them, basically, um, the writer did a lot harder work than that. He didn't just take the videos and make transcriptions, but, yeah. uh, you know, that was part of it. This like word for word, what the people were saying, not rewritten in perfect, uh, white man grammar. It was exactly their words, how they said them. And it was raw, raw language. So that's an example of a story that even though it only took five to seven days, um, it was done Right. Matt, Matt had never been to Pine Ridge. Um, I brought Matt in and opened all the doors, and Matt, Matt did the story right in seven days. Mm. And it was that combination. How do, you, how do you edit more subtle imagery? How do you find true words? And how do you put all those together into a piece that's the truth? And, and I, I so rarely see a piece like that that is the voice of the people yeah. Do you find that so, that the that the power of, of you know recorded audio and, and video is is making you more interested in incorporating that as part of your your work and not just still images or no? Yeah, definitely. But I I don't think that I'm interested in this way that I see right now because I when I when I hear you say that I'm thinking oh yeah magazines are, and newspapers are now wanting everybody to like make the same story again, but in a short multimedia piece, that's boring. It's, it's because it's, it's distracting you from the story. It's hard to put together. You don't just throw together a a five minute 
video piece in a couple of days. It's 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 really hard to do, uh, but I, I do believe there is a role for the audio and video, mm-hmm. but not as a three-minute replica of the story. Um, and I come from an arts background, so all of my interest in the video and sound is is like like my photography. I want that video and sound to evolve into a kind of more poetic approach. I don't want it to be a video with a nice little voiced-over intro that tells you the whole story uh, and sets it up just like a magazine piece. I want the video or the audio to be, to be honest, a little bit more voyeuristic or, um, or like the writing in the Harper's piece, just direct language. Yeah. And that people can just... People are smart enough, or we should allow people to be smart enough to figure out the context for themselves. We don't have to spell everything out perfectly, literally. In, in and so if, if in the future, if I'm recording video and audio, um, I, I don't, I want it to be that, I want it to be that poetic approach. I don't want it to be, I don't want it to be literal multimedia storytelling. When, in your TED talk, you talked about having traveled all over the world and yet you found one, one of the most exotic and otherworldly places you'd ever visited when you came back home. Um, do you find that you increasingly want to spend more time and tell stories that you find here in the country rather than traveling abroad? Or? Yeah, definitely. I I think that more and more I'm becoming more interested in the mental landscape than the physical one. You know, I think after traveling for so long to so many places, I just start seeing surface. And it's like, oh, there's a nice mosque. I'll fit that one in the background of the picture. And oh, a nice scarf and market and blah, blah, blah. I just like, it just becomes surface. So if what we're really trying to get at is like our more psychological core human elements of existence and of suffering, you know, if, if suffering is what we're talking about or any of these emotions, I don't have to go far away to get it. I could get it on my on my street in South Seattle. Like, I'm more interested in that psychological and mental landscape, I think now, uh, than I was. I don't need to. I don't need to fly to every continent to make good pictures. I think that becomes distracting. And what kind of stories are you hoping to make over the next several years? I know that the Pine Ridge Project has, has been a long-term thing for you, but what other stories have been sort of piquing your interest and in saying, I want to tell, not, maybe not specifically uh, a story, but you know, what are, what are the kinds or types of stories that you're hoping to be able to tell and find, find an audience for? Mm, they're going to be hard ones to sell because I'm, like I said, I come from an art background and I'm, to be honest, I'm getting a little bit bored with traditional photojournalism. So all of the ideas that are exciting me right now, um, they don't really fit the traditional print media landscape. I, I am interested in more video and sound recording. I'm interested in evidence collecting. Uh, and some of that is going to be manifest in more like editing than actually creation of traditional photojournalistic imagery. Um, right now I'm working on a project about uh, spammers, email spammers. Yeah, uh-huh. it's turned into a kind of a strange collaborative project where I'm baiting pictures out of them, and I'm amassing this huge collection of portraits of spammers, and like this ongoing dialogue. And of course, you know, 99% of the pictures are not real; they're appropriated 
So they're appropriated self-portraits. But uh-huh. I'm interested a lot more in this right now in this kind of like dialogue, collaboration, uh, finding like these pieces, like, how do I explain this? Like on Pine Ridge at this point, I'm more interested in drawings than pictures. Okay. And I don't mean mine draw my drawings. I'm fine. I'm I'm collecting objects now, and maybe these objects get photographed. Maybe they get scanned. But I'm just trying to broaden the dialogue outside of just traditional photojournalistic storytelling. Well, why don't you tell people where they can find out more about this project that you're, you're working along with uh, Shepard Ferry and the other uh, artists? Where can they find out more and uh, and donate if they want to do that? Right. The the project with Shepard Ferry and Ernesto Urena is uh, on a new website that launched uh, in the beginning of March called uh, Emphasis. And Emphasis is the word emphasis, but with a dot before the IS. It's not a dot com. Um, it's a dot IS. And Emphasis is a is a pretty special thing, and I think that it could be... I think it could be an incredible new tool for photojournalists because it does create a collaboration between the audience and the photographer where the audience becomes involved on a level before stories even begin a lot of the time. Uh, So it's like lifting the curtain to show the world how we make what we make and to take them along with us. My particular project is not quite as, it's not like a lot of the other photographers. The other photographers are raising money to go make new pictures. And then they're going to kind of take the audience with them on the journey. Um, my project is different in that I'm not saying I need new pictures. I'm just saying I need new outlets. Mine is about awareness and about channeling people into uh, specific action steps they can take. So because magazines won't print, you know, the combinations of word and, words and text that I feel are the strongest, and we're going to bypass that, and we're going to buy billboard space. And all of the money that comes in through the Emphasis Project, 100% of it will go into printing the imagery and buying the ad space and mailing the stuff. Um, there's no money to be made. No money goes into my account. Um, no money goes into helping me make more pictures. It's strictly a, uh information campaign. It's a grassroots information campaign. So people can go to the website Emphasis, type in the word Emphasis, crowdsourcing and or I, crowdfunding. And I'll be uh, putting a link on the blog to that webpage so if, uh, people who, uh, who don't have access to a computer, uh, you'll, you'll find it on the blog at thecandyframe.com. My last question is a question I always ask my, uh, my guests, and I ask them to recommend or suggest another photographer uh, for our listeners to discover or explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that be for you and why? Oh, geez. That's a tough one. Who am I watching these days? Right. Well, right now, like off the, off the top of my head, just for like pure, like traditional journalistic photography that I think is incredibly strong is um, one of the other one of the other people that was in, involved in the launch of Emphasis, part of the launch team of Emphasis, was a photographer named Carolyn Drake. Hmm, I'm not familiar with and her. Carolyn, Carolyn Drake is. I don't. Every time I look at one of her portfolios, I'm totally blown away. Um, she did a lot of work in Central Asia and continues that work now. 
with with her emphasis project. So I'd recommend everybody take a look at Carolyn Drake's work. Great suggestion, and thank you so much for appearing on the show. It was a real pleasure to have the chance to finally talk you to you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for joining me again. If you have any comments, please drop me a line at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. You can also join our community of photographers on Flickr, Facebook, or Twitter. Links to each can be found on the website. Till next time, this is Ibarian X. Perello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.